Well, today we get into a pretty thorny issue. That being, as I announced a couple of weeks ago, the violence of God, which we don't, we don't like to talk very much the word violence with God, the word God, but the violence of God in the Old Testament. And the reason we want to talk about it is because this is one of the biggest challenges that people face in our world today. When people start thinking about Christianity, what Christianity is and what it means, it's inevitable that somebody is going to raise the question about this God of the Old Testament. Who in the world is that guy? What is happening with all of the killing that goes on in the Old Testament? And there's no reason for me to pull punches here. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. Somebody, just before service, somebody said to me, have you ever noticed how much X-rated stuff there is in the Bible? And that's true. Uh, You know, just in in reading for this morning, I was thinking about the story of Judah and Tamar, and I won't tell the story right now. There's children present. We can't talk about the Bible when the kids are here. Because there's just, there's some of those things in the Old Testament. And one of the things that is included is this notion of God and all of the violence that occurs in the Old Testament. It is a challenge to us for sure. And so this morning I'm going to talk about that, but I want you to know that I'm not doing so glibly. Uh, Like I I don't come to this topic with this mindset that says I've got it all figured out. Because I don't have it all figured out. I think there are some questions that just remain At the end of the day, even after you've studied and thought about it and prayed about it and wrestled with it, there's still some questions that come at the end of the day. And so that's one of my preliminaries here as we get ready to discuss this topic. And that simply is my answers today are not going to satisfy the sensibilities of every person. Not everybody's going to walk out today going, okay, now I get it. I've got God figured out. Now I know what he was doing in the Old Testament with all that violence. Okay? You're not going to walk out today with probably with that assurance uh, of an answer. I, I hope there's something there that we can walk out with. But I don't know that everybody's going to have every question answered for him or herself. It is certainly a challenge. And it's a challenge to me. The fact is I wonder a lot of things about God. God is at times mysterious. And the fact is his ways are higher than my ways and sometimes even incomprehensible. In fact, they're unexplainable or unimaginable or unjustified or whatever you want to say. There are things that God can see that I can't see. I can't analyze God any more than an ant can analyze somebody here who does calculus equations. And the fact is, is that I'm closer to the ant than I am to God. And so there's this huge gap of understanding because God himself is a mystery. Sometimes those mysteries are filled with wonder, like the beginnings of the universe or the idea of eternity. You know, God exists in eternity, not in time. What does that even mean? What is eternity? I, I, I really can't get my mind around the idea of eternity. Eternity. What about the coming of Christ for the salvation of humankind? Do I really understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God who comes in the flesh? Or how about something as routine as the birth of a baby? Like, he, who's here who hasn't, at the birth of a baby, just been astounded by what God has done? It is so beautiful, so precious, and yet this incredible mystery. Or how is it that inside 
almost all of your craniums out there, there is some gray matter. (laughs) There is this matter that with something, electricity, energy, some enzymes, I don't know what happens, but that gray matter inside that bony skull of yours causes you to be not dead, but alive. Like that thing that looks kind of like jello or something sitting on a plate. You put it inside a human body, inside a skull, and it produces someone who can think and talk and act and drive all kinds of movements. Like how in the world does that happen? I don't get it. And God created that and a million other things that astound me. And so it's not surprising to me that I'm not going to understand everything there is to know about God. And then some of these mysteries are not just wonders and wonderful, but some of these mysteries are dark and evil. Like what about the origins of Satan? What about the origins of the bad stuff? And how is it that this good God allows evil to exist and then in some way is in touch with it because he's he's in touch with everything. And so evil doesn't go unnoticed by him. The origins of Satan are are not unknown to him. Evil plays a role in our lives and he allows it. The demonic exists. And these are mysteries that I don't understand and yet I know that God has a total handle on. And so I don't get his holiness as Mike made mention of earlier. I don't get everything there is to know about God. Today's subject is like that. I think we have some provisional answers. I think we have some discernible, revealed answers as to why mass killings, genocide practically, take place in the Old Testament. And God himself does them. And if God doesn't do them, then he has people, his people, carry them out on his behalf. How is it that that takes place? And while I think it's unlikely that I'm going to convince the skeptic today, I hope that we can at least offer some discussion about this, which is in some way reasonable because I think it's a question that we just can't avoid. A second preliminary, and I should have fixed this slide because it doesn't make any sense the way it's written. Take out the word is, okay? I noticed this in the first service, didn't do anything about it. I do understand something of the character of God as it's shown to us in a thousand different places in Scripture. That's a second preliminary. I do understand some things about God. And in fact, what I see God doing an awful lot of times is good, loving, wonderful stuff. In fact, there is so much of that that it colors entirely my perception of who he is. And if there are some things that are mysteries to me and I don't understand them, it's those other things about God which inform me and let me know who he is. And in fact, I see these mysteries, the things that I don't get, I see them specifically in light of all of the things that I see God doing so much of the time that I do understand. And I'm grateful for that. I'm glad that whatever evil it is, for example, that I see, or maybe I shouldn't say evil, whatever the, the, the atrocious things are that I see in the Old Testament, I see those in light of Jesus. And somehow that colors my understanding of what God is, who he is, and what he's about. A third preliminary, 
The reason that anyone thinks the killing of innocents, women and children in the Old Testament is wrong, unsettling or unacceptable is largely because of the Judeo-Christian God. Just think about that. What if there is no God? What if everything is natural and we're just animals? If we're just animals, it colors entirely my perception of what killing is all about. I got a video, or I haven't seen the video, I've only seen photographs at this point. My son Ryan, uh, last week, he and his wife Jessica were at Yellowstone. And they went to Yellowstone to go camping and, you know, see all the sites. And they were hoping to see some animals. And they did have a chance to see some animals. One of the things that happened was that while they were there, a bison, who I believe was in a fight with another bison, which is interesting. That kind of goes to make my point, was killed by the one bison. One horned the other one to death. So the bison dies not that far off of one of the main roads. And so... The tourists have a chance to see what goes on when an animal like that is killed. And so this bison is lying out in the field for several days and it attracts all kinds of animals. And Ryan didn't get to see the wolves that came and tore it to shreds, but there were a couple of grizzlies that spent about three days there. And Jessica and Ryan had a chance for hours on end to sit up on a hillside 200 yards away from these grizzlies as they fed on this bison. And they, they had, uh, there were people there with spotting scopes you know, who would come and look at it close up. And Jessica and Ryan actually took a video through one of the spotting scopes of these grizzly bears for a couple of days feeding on the bison. They're going to show me that video. Well, I'm kind of excited to see that. It's going to be neat. But it will also be gruesome because our world is filled with gruesome things. And if we were just animals, do you think our attitude would be the same about killing then as it is now? I don't think so. In fact, Killing, I would think, would be as routine for us as animals as it would be or is in the animal kingdom. Because that's what they do. And nobody's going to yell at those grizzly bears, unless they're really foolish, and say, stop it, grizzly bears! Don't be chewing on that bison! Or nobody's going to go out to the two bison and say, what are you boys doing? you got to calm down here. Can't you sort this out amicably? Have a conversation. You don't need to fight. Nobody's going to say that. And nobody would expect that the bison wouldn't do that to each other or that those grizzly bears aren't going to eat on the remnants of the carcass because that's just the way it is. And it would be that way with us except for one thing. And that is God. And when he created human beings, he created them differently than that. And he plants within us his spirit and his image. And so we have spiritual understandings. In fact, I think for something like what we're talking about today, it takes a certain level of spiritual understanding to get it. And so I don't expect to convince the skeptic because of our spiritual minds. That's why we can understand something like this. Well, a fourth kind of preliminary. And if you're thinking to yourself, man, so many preliminaries, this is going to be two hours long. It's not. We are ultimately followers of a new covenant. Because the fact is that we don't live in those Old Testament times under that covenant. God does not ask us to destroy nations and cities and to kill children, which he did ask his people to do in the Old Testament. He doesn't ask that of us. 
We live under a new covenant. Things have definitely changed. Praise God that they have. And there is no evidence, there's no place in Scripture at all where Jesus ever makes any kind of move to have his people be violent. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. You want to pull, a, pull out a sword and whack somebody's ear off thinking that you're going to protect the Son of God and keep him from being crucified? Jesus will tell you, put away your sword. And so it's a new covenant. It's different. The relationship that we have is certainly different. It's interesting to me, by the way, I, I, I was thinking about this in terms of, of modern-day Israel. You know, we talk all the time about Islam with the, uh, you know, with the radical groups that have risen from that religion. But when you think about the Palestine, that area, and the Middle East, and all the fighting that goes on, is it any wonder that given the violence that's in the Old Testament, that Israel, Judaism today wouldn't somehow be violent? I mean, I'm not going to try and cast blame here in terms of who's violent first or anything like that. It's just interesting that if you have someone like King David as your great hero of the past, who is this King David? What did he do? Well, he wasn't always a king. What was he before he was a king? He was a shepherd. And then what did he do? He did defeat Goliath. That's exactly right, Leanne. <laughs> All right. It's <laughs> exactly right. David w- David took a rock and he used it just like, you know, we everybody's down on guns today. David took a rock. It was just like a, a howitzer. He spins the thing and he hits him in the middle of the forehead. Well, what do you think happened? It wasn't a clean death. That rock broke his skull and huge damage to his brain. It was a violent act. And it wasn't the last one for this David. David has slain his ten thousands, they said about him. Because he was a violent man. He killed people. There's a sense in which it was his profession before he was a king to go about killing. And so it's not surprising to me that we would have the problems we do in Palestine when you put together people that are coming out of this violent, violent culture and even a violent-oriented religion. The question is, what are we going to do with all, about, with all of that today in our own faith? And how is it, if at all, are we going to justify this whole notion of God doing this killing that he does? And so, in a very brief few minutes, let me just tell you a couple of points that I think speak to the issue. The first one is this. Simply Canaanite brutality. The Canaanites were guilty of astonishing brutalities, including child sacrifice, which nobody would tolerate this today. When we see it in ISIS, what do we want to do? And I, you know, I have to admit, I'm like lots of Christians today are pacifists. And if you're a pacifist, I don't want to offend or or anything. I'm not a pacifist. And and the reason why is because of these kinds of brutalities. If we allowed ISIS to continue to do what they're doing in northern Iraq, they would take over the world, gladly so. They would kill billions of people in the process. 
And all of those atrocities would just happen if we chose not to stop them. The same thing was true in World War II. And so it seems to me that to stop that kind of evil, I, I think that God would actually permit us to stop that kind of evil. And again, I know there's difference of opinions about that. That's my opinion. So when I look at this, and I think about the Canaanites, they were guilty of astonishing brutalities, including child sacrifice. History records the atrocities the Canaanites committed, often in the name of religion. They needed to be stopped, it would appear, because that's exactly what God did. And when he sent the Israelites into the promised land, he didn't just choose any land. He chose a land where people were very anti-Yahweh. They did have their own deities, but those deities allowed them to be violent people. So I want you to turn in your Bibles just for a moment. We're going to flip through a couple of passages here. Look at Genesis chapter 15 in your Bibles. Genesis is the first book in the Bible for those of you who don't know that. Look at Genesis chapter 15, and I want you to just look at verse 16, and then we're going to move on quickly from there to a couple other verses. Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, and it simply says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. And he's talking to Israel and to Abraham and saying, you're going to come back after the captivity in Egypt. Your descendants will come back here. Why? Why will they come back here? Four generations from now. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. They're coming back there specifically because of the sin of the Amorites, the people who live in that land. They're coming back at a specific time when the sins of those people has arisen to such a level that God just can't take it anymore. And so one of the reasons that they're going to be killed by the Israelites is simply because of the atrocities. Look over at Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, look at verse 4. It says, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess for your stiff-necked people. This is interesting. He says to the Israelites, you are no good. You're a stiff-necked people. And later on, a few hundred years later, he's actually going to take them into captivity. But what he says about the Canaanites, the people who are in the land there, he says, they are so bad that even though you're bad, I'm going to use you to get rid of them because they're so terrible. Which tells me that God is in the business, in some cases, of destroying those who are, in fact, that bad. And that's what he was doing in Canaan. Now, there is one problem with that, one big one. And if you were a skeptic out here today, you would say, wait a minute, I got a question for you. You're telling us how bad they are and they need to be destroyed. What about all those innocent children? How bad were they? And you had to kill them too? Well, a general answer for you, and I, you'll have to see whether or not this works for you. I'll, you can try this on for size. 
It seems to me that God, when it comes to the question of life and death, thinks much differently than we typically do in our Western, quite naturalistic mindset. We think that the, human, that the end of human life is the greatest tragedy. And I just don't think God looks at it that way. God clearly doesn't think that the death of human beings is necessarily all that tragic. And there's a very good reason for that. Because God's perception is not about a blip in time, but about eternity. And what God wants more than anything else is eternal relationship with human beings. And so whatever it is that brings about eternal relationship with human beings, that's what he's about. That's his will. And it means that if the death of some human beings who don't honor him is necessary or advantageous in order for God to be in relationship with other human beings who do honor him, then that's what he wills. And so if you have somebody who doesn't honor God, and there is the potential somehow for that death of those people to contribute to other people who will honor God, God is quite willing to see these people die because he loves so much these people and wants so badly to be in eternal relationship with them. And if he's not going to be in eternal relationship with this one, but he can be with this one, then the death of this one is just not as important to him as the eternal life that this one is going to have with God. He just thinks differently than we do. And that's okay. His ways are not my ways. He is beyond me. It shouldn't surprise me that he would think differently than we do. Here's another thing that I think about. The deaths of those Israelites killed in the case of civilians and women helped preserve or could help preserve the possibility of Israel's relationship with God and the relationships with God of countless future generations of Gentiles by preserving Israel's future as a people connected to God. In other words, God was doing something very specific with Israel itself. He chose them. And although the text says they had no right to claim any righteousness on their own, They couldn't say it's because we're so good that God's allowing us to be the ones who live. God does say, I chose Israel. And it's his sovereign choice that he chooses them as the means whereby the gospel comes eventually to all of humankind. And so for God to make a choice like that, he's looking at the big picture and thinking this is what must happen in order for us to eventually, for him to eventually have relationship with us like he wants. So I want you to turn and look at with me at another passage in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, and this time with verse 11. And just notice what he says here. He says, obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And if you're impressed that I can say all those words, so be it. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will be a snare among you. 
Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you, and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. And for God, this is not tolerable. Because this would mean the demise of his people. And his plan is to have these people live, for them to be a people who will serve him eventually to the point where humankind can come to know the Lord Almighty. That was his plan. And it could have easily been taken off track at just exactly this point. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9. It's the same kind of thing. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. Do you see what the temptation will be? The sacrifice of children was going to be tempted, uh, was, the Israelites were going to be tempted to participate in human child sacrifice. And the fact is, they did. You read through the prophets and you find that that's exactly what happened. They didn't separate themselves from these other nations and they ended up participating in child sacrifice. And it's hard for me to imagine anything more detestable. If someone came in here and said, let's sacrifice all the children, what would we do? There would be some violence. So it's not surprising to me that God would say, let's not have that. And let's stop them from doing this. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. And so there are reasons, apparently, for God to do what he does in terms of driving out the people. The terrible totality of the destruction was undoubtedly related to stopping the assimilation to pagan nations on Israel's part. They could so easily go that path, and God wants them not to. Israel was not to be like the other nations. In commanding complete destruction of the Canaanites, the Lord says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And it's kind of their whole culture to be different and separate. Some of the laws we see in the Old Testament seem kind of bizarre and pointless, except that they're trying to separate Israel from the nations. Now, again, the case of killing children seems to me the most challenging. However, for the spiritually minded, there is, I think, some kind of answer. And let me just ask you, church, when it comes to the killing of children, what happens, what is it that we say and believe happens to babies, to children, when they die. What happens to them? In heaven. They're not lost. We would say that the children who die, die in the Lord. They're with Him. 
And so if physical death, as we've already said, is not all that important to God, and what he really wants more than anything else is eternal life for those children, he apparently says, you know what? The death of these kids is worth it. I'm going to take them and have them be with me. And so God is in fact at that point taking little Canaanite babies and he's making them his own. And they then become in relationship with him. And so it's not as though the innocents are slaughtered with absolutely no purpose and nothing redeeming. There is in fact something redeeming there that can happen if little Canaanite children are going to come and be united with God following their physical deaths. And in the process, of course, he keeps Israel pure and prevents the nation from being destroyed by their idolatry. And so in one way, if I'm right here in terms of trying to say that this Christian Western standpoint we sometimes have is not as um, in line with God's will as it could be, here's the one problem that I have. And that has to do with Israel itself when God asks them to go kill somebody. It would be a challenge for anybody, I would think, to have to take a sword and to do what they were doing with their swords. You would have to think twice about that. That's going to cause you some pain. And so I would say that the biggest challenge here in all of this is to Israel itself. As they're asked to commit atrocities in the name of Yahweh. That, I don't, part of me just thinks, I don't get that. And the only thing I can think of is this, that in that culture, it was just so brutal a culture that it just didn't impact them as much as it might impact me. That they were almost used to it. That it was part of who they were to live and be part of such a brutal culture. And so again, God's eternal perspective seems to me to be the one that we need to hold to. Where his eternal perspective even transcends the atrocities that his own people can commit. Because he he sees ultimately the eternal value of relationship with human beings that's going to come out of those atrocities. Now I must confess, I don't think I've answered all the questions. So when you come up to me afterwards and you say, oh yeah, well what about this? I may not have a perfectly satisfying answer. The fact is, we're all on a journey trying to understand things which in some cases are mysteries. And for me, the overall character of God as he reveals himself in scripture and history convinces me that even though I don't understand, I need to trust him anyways and always And though it's a mystery, I stand there. Let's pray. Lord, these are tough questions. And although you have revealed yourself to us in Scripture and in the person of Jesus and throughout history, sometimes these mysteries are difficult for us to sort out. Father, I pray that you'd bless us as we continue to think about who you are. I pray that all of us would continue to have faith and confidence in you, even at the times when we don't understand. Thank you for being the God that you are, 
for giving us Jesus, for allowing us to know you. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.